Hello, and welcome to the latest DSE Beechcross Lawcast. My name is Emma Fuller, and I'm Head of Motor and Casualty Market Strategy for the Claim Solutions Group of DAC Beechcroft. In this series, Helen Mason, Head of Vehicle Hire and Damage at DAC Beechcroft, is joined by a number of colleagues to discuss the latest hot topics from our recent Credit Hire Annual Conference. Hi, and welcome to our latest Credit Hire podcast mini-series. I'm Helen Mason, Head of Credit Hire at DAC Beechcroft, And today I'm joined by Dan Miller, associate in our Newport office, and also by James Keogh, partner in our Birmingham Credit Hire team. And today on our agenda, we have got cold calling to look at, also a look at market behaviours, especially in light of the fixed recoverable costs, which came into effect on the 1st of October this year. Going to look at some emerging trends and tactics, and then a closer look at pre-action protocols, and finally, a look at um, mediation and what that means for us in the credit hire industry. So Dan, let's bring you in here. Um, Talk to us about cold calling. Uh, What is it and what can we expect? Um, Well, cold calling is um, a a telephone call that you might not be expecting from a business. Um, The consultation on it actually closed not that long ago. Um, It was on the 22nd of September. Um, The Treasury was looking at banning cold calling for consumer financial services and products. Obviously, as an industry, we we welcome any regulation that would um, protect consumers. But we did put in a response to that consultation because we thought it was important that the ban did not inadvertently cover calls that could ultimately benefit the consumer. So here, Dan, are you talking about intervention? I am for credit hire. And is it likely that the uh, cold calling ban will have an impact on intervention strategies? Well, the government did say in the consultation that they would seek to ban scam calls from reaching the public while allowing legitimate and beneficial communication for business to continue. However, it wasn't clear how this was was going to be achieved. So on the wording, there is a concern in the industry that, yes, intervention calls could be covered, which is something we wouldn't want to happen. So I guess at the moment, is it just a, a watch this space and see what happens? Yeah, um, with the consultation closed, the next step is now waiting for the government's response to that um, and see what, if any, um, changes can be made. OK, good to know. And is there anything else we need to perhaps be aware of this stage in relation to cold calling? Um, no, no, nothing. Um, we know that it's banned for, for pensions, etc. So I think it's just the, the extension from from that, but nothing specific, no. Uh, thanks, Dan. James, um, let's bring you in on this now um, in relation to market behaviours, um, especially given the impact of fixed recoverable costs. What are we seeing? And more importantly, what do we think we're going to see going forwards? Yeah, sure. We have looked at quite an amount of data um, for this sort of segment. So following the, the announcement early this year about the date for implementation of fixed costs on cases up to £100,000, we have seen a month-on-month increase in litigation, ranging from certain solicitors um, increasing their litigation by 43% and some by well over uh, 100%. To put it in some form of context from one firm, we saw over 250 instructions, nearly a fourfold increase on their normal um, instruction levels in September. And again, from another firm, we saw their average of four instructions a month go to over 41 in September alone. And that has been replicated across the market. Um, 
the reasons for this change, as you've rightly said, Helen, is the, the fixed recoverable costs that have uh, now taken effect on the 1st of October and claimant solicitors really scrambling to issue litigation prior to those changes. We've also seen these firms gearing up for this with extensive recruitment from other firms in the market or taking wholesale teams and also as well incentivisation um, from issuing proceedings through uh, bonuses be, being paid if lawyers were hitting their targets on issuing of cases. Well, that, that that's some increase. Um, are we expecting that to be maintained or are we thinking that's going to plateau and then start to, to, to drop off now, given that we're well into what week three, week four of fixed recoverable cost biting? Very interesting question. Um, I think for the moment, we anticipate that there will be a lull um, in proceedings being issued because there's been such a heavy focus on on getting cases issued that that ultimately means that lawyers' caseloads, both claimant and defendant side, have have increased. And there is always, always a limit to that. And I think we expect as well, there will be a lot of satellite litigation, certainly within the first sort of 12 to 18 months of the fixed cost regime coming into force um, in, in regards to ironing out a few a few of the areas where there appears to be uncertainty and obviously credit hire is likely to be at the centre of that. Uh, yeah credit hire again at the uh, epicentre of um, these types of, uh, of reforms and um, we've talked about kind of this increase in litigation rate that the market has has seen over the last few weeks. I'm just interested to know about other behaviours um, maybe when it comes to the average days to litigate have we have we seen a, a change there yes we have it's probably one of the most interesting pieces of data that, that we have seen so what we have looked at is the average days it takes to litigate from the accident date to the claim form um, being issued um, normally what we what we have seen in, in the market is is a decrease um, year on year in terms of this time to to litigate from the date of accident um, and a real mix, really, of claimant solicitors issuing some of their older cases, but together with some of their newer and, and stronger cases that they that they will have in their locker. But as a result of the fixed cost changes, um, what we have actually seen is the average days increase, which is probably not something we would have anticipated to to have seen. Now, some of that. Um, is definitely driven um, through increased litigation, but the majority of it has been as a result of the fixed costs. And we have seen an increase as well in the amount of liability dispute cases um, that that we are that we are seeing for cases above ten thousand pounds. So it seems quite clear to us that there is a definite correlation between the claimants listen needing to litigate their book of business on case over £10,000 ahead of the fixed costs regime, regardless of whether liability has been resolved or not. That's certainly interesting to note, um, especially in relation to liability and probably a bit more work that um, those sitting on the defendant side of things need to, to consider uh, within litigation and pre-litigation. I guess so far we've concentrated a lot on the front end, so um, litigation rates and time between accident date and a claim being litigated. What about at the back end? What are we seeing in, in terms of throughput and, and, and settlement changes? So again, settlements have been um, quite interesting to 
to see and, and when we've looked at this data it's over a three-year period so if we go back to 2021 for example the the average duration at that time tended to be around about 42 um days of higher beat being claimed if we fast forward to 2023 um currently the average paid days is 28 days so we are seeing a reduction of 14 days on average coming through compared to 2021 um so really, you, your next question is, what is the reason for the decrease in the duration being being claimed? As it's obviously always a good behaviour um, to see. And I think that has largely been driven by probably the biggest change has been the change in the portfolio of work from, from CHOs. So we have seen some of the, the bigger CHOs with lower durations tending to litigate more than um, say, for example, CHOs or, or taxi cases where, where the durations tend to be a lot higher. What about um, kind of court delays, James? Because I know there's been quite a lot of noise in the industry um, probably since um, COVID struck. Um, what are we seeing there in relation to, to kind of court delays and, and, and how that's impacting the market? Well, the court delays seem to be ever ever increasing on on both sides um, of the fence. I think much to much to um, solicitors' frustration as well as their clients um, sometimes. And I think some of the most recent stats have been now that small claims takes over one year to get towards trial, and often again it gets vacated on the first occasion, and it can sometimes take four times before we get to court. Faster multi-track, we are now looking at an average of somewhere in two to four years um, for those cases to come through and that is definitely driving up the, the average time to settle a case um, even where 75% of the cases that have been settled have been in the small claims the increase um, alone has been over over 20 weeks in total during that period and what we do predict is that the average day to settle will continue to to increasing court delays. There was an article um, yesterday in the Law Gazette about the effect of the online um, court portals that have come recently. And that again is facing problems with technology and what the portals can actually do. The expectation being that that again will continue to unnecessarily drive up the average time for a case to, to reach trial or settle. Uh, thanks, James. So certainly fun times uh, ahead, I guess, in relation to behaviours and also court backlogs. And let's see how the impact of fixed recoverable cost bears out over the next few months, as you say, with this expected um, satellite litigation. Um, Dan, let's talk PAPS. And you may need to explain to some of our audience uh, what we mean by that. So a PAP is a pre-action uh, protocol. Um, there's nothing more than a, a lawyer or the a judiciary love uh, than an anachronism. Um, th- what they are is they are um, a set of rules uh, that the uh, parties to uh, prospective proceedings are expected to follow um, in order to uh, try and settle their case without the need for uh, litigation. Um, the, 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 a few of the bigger ones is um, the MOJ portal um, that is based on a pre-action protocol or the OAC portal that is also based on a, a pre-action protocol. Um, and some of these protocols have um, sanctions. Um, they have, uh, uh, you get a telling off um, if you don't follow them um, and there are, there are um, consequences if you don't follow them. So tell us all about the latest PAP then and how that's going to impact the market. 
So um, in August um, of this year, um, the working group on uh, pre-action protocols headed up by uh, Professor Andrew Higgins released part one of their report on uh, pre-action protocols. Um, it is 90 pages long, so if, like me, you have read it, you'll see that there are quite a few uh, recommendations in there. Um, but for us in Credit Hire, there were two specific ones that jumped out for me. Um, the first one is making compliance to the pre-action protocols formally mandatory and actually giving the court some teeth. There was also suggestion of a revised practice direction to include a general pre-action protocol that may, in part two, include um, credit hire. Uh, thanks, Dan. Um, is there anything else we need to know at this stage around PAPs? Um, well, part two of the report um, is is next. Um, and from that, as, as an industry, as a credit high defendant industry, um, I think it's important that we um, we certainly lobby and put in our responses to say that a credit higher uh, pre-action protocol would be useful for the industry um, to reduce uh, friction and legal costs on both sides. Um, and it's, it will also be remain to be seen what these teeth um, that the uh, part one talks about will be. Um, uh, it's, it's likely that that's going to be costs um, and or other sanctions like strikeouts. Um, but just going back to costs, we need to see what that looks like, especially in the, the new background of fixed recoverable costs and the yet defined unreasonable behaviour. Thanks, Dan. So I guess it's another case of watch this space and see what comes out over the next few months or so. Definitely. Thanks, Dan. James, we talked uh, at our recent Credit High conference about some emerging trends and um, you spoke about um, vehicles being kind of held hostage. Um, do you want to perhaps talk us through some of the behaviours that we're seeing out there in the market? And I guess most importantly, um, what we can do to um, address that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, one market behaviour we've really seen an increase in is with regards to vehicles not being released from storage until full payment is received for either the vehicle damage or storage or indeed both elements of the claim. The, the obvious net result of this is that it increases the duration um, and ultimately it means that potentially we're, we're unable to help the claimant mitigate their loss due to refusals to accept anything lower than both sums in full. So again, it is really important that for insurers that they are taking proactive um, stances with regards to such claims. Um, because pre-litigation strategy, particularly with a fixed cost regime, um, will have more importance than ever in regards to what insurers are doing. So what we would recommend for insurers to do in this scenario is to obtain the claimant's bank information to make a direct payment to them via BACs or a faster payment. Um, is preferable, although we are aware that some CHOs do not have the ability to hold client money. For example, they don't have a client account set up for monies to be received into, uh, and therefore they're not able to accept these funds, and in which case then insurers will need to gain the claimant's actual bank information. There may be issues with regards to that or a reluctance um, for, for those to be provided, although those concerns probably aren't warranted so the alternative really for insurers to opt for is to send a check uh, via recorded delivery and it's really important that insurers don't pontificate on that and get that check out in order to help mitigate loss um, 
Another tactic the insurers can use is the use of general interim payments on cases. Um, so what happens in this scenario is that if, for example, the full amount was paid on vehicle damage and there was a dispute over the vehicle damage, that the insurer is paying that as a general interim payment towards the totality um, of the claim. And the courts recognise these payments as a payment towards all heads of damage, where it is a general interim payment as, as opposed to one specific um, head of loss. Other tactics insurers should look to uh, employ on these cases is that when we looked at our data, we found that in these cases where, where vehicles weren't being released, that actually 70% of the cases in pecuniosity was not raised or indeed proven. And in light of the new fixed cost regime, it's really imperative more than ever to get good early offers out. And therefore, we would be recommending to insurers to get good early full BHR evidence. By obtaining the BHR evidence as well, on the flip side, it may enable the insurer to make uh, admissions under CPR 14 on sums that they're offering for higher or indeed wider parts um, of the claim to help lower the value in dispute. And this again may bring it um, from intermediary into fast or from fast into small claims if if the appropriate admissions can be made and obviously more importantly you've got the evidence to support to support those those admissions being made so it's really also important to consider all of the litigation tools that you have um, at your disposal um, and one particular tool is pre-action disclosure applications for documents. Now we know and are well aware of the Holt and Alliance decision which we've talked about on previous podcasts in regards to the effect of pre-action disclosure um, on the issue of impecuniosity. However, there are still other documents which are disclosable outside of impecuniosity. And we've recently had um, instruction, which Dan was actually um, instructed on, um, where a CHO had failed to provide um, sufficient documentation to evidence their claim. Um, and a PAD application was made on that particular case. Um, and the disclosure then followed of those documents, which the CHO had all along. Probably the other element of head of damage to look out for as well is recovering storage cases. Um, and it's really important on this head of loss that insurers are looking at Google Street View of the claimant's home address. Um, is there a need for storage? Is there a driveway, a garage? Is there really a need for the vehicle to be, um, to be stored and there's no off-road availability? And in the event that storage is proven and then and you are making an offer or an admission on storage, it's really important that you've got accurate loss of use dates to challenge any excessive storage claims. And as I said at the outset, the overall importance of a good pre-lit strategy cannot be emphasised enough. Thanks, James. I guess there was one more area that we wanted to look at today. Um, and Dan, um, you spoke at our conference around uh, mediation and what's coming down the line for for credit hire practitioners in relation to that and I guess for most of us who have been in industry for a, a very long time um this is this is going to be new it's all new to us so um yeah tell me tell me about that yeah so now we're looking at uh, July of this year um the Ministry of Justice confirmed their intention for um compulsory ADR to be um, introduced for all claims under the value of ten thousand pounds but those cases without personal injury. Now, I realise there's another anachronism there. Um, ADR stands for Alternative Dispute Resolution, which just means that it's uh, settling a claim outside of court for the assistance of an impartial 
um, body. Um, in the main, um, settling it this way is faster, easier, and less expensive than going to court. There are many types of, of ADR, but in this scenario, the government has indicated that it's the mediation they want the parties to use. Uh, thanks, Dan. And I guess, again, with this area, there's there's still lots more to come on this over the forthcoming months, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, the MOJ did indicate that they will introduce the rules to necessitate this change in this parliament. Um, while we wait to see what the, the details are, because the, the, the CPR will need to be changed, um, so we will get a, um advance notice of what those rules look like. What we do know is that the mediation will be free of charge. Um, the referral for mediation will be after um, a defence is filed, but before the case is allocated to a track and directions are given. It will probably be about an hour long and conducted remotely. There, there may be sanction imposed for parties who do not participate. Now, those sanctions, again, are uh, consequences for not um, uh, going to the mediation or not fully participating in the mediation. And they could include strike out of the claim um, or a defendant's defence, or it could mean costs, having to pay costs. We know that it's probably going to be the uh, uh, shuttle technique for mediation. Um, so what that means is um, We'll have James on um, one line and I, as the mediator, will talk to him and, and find out what his um, issues are. I'll then talk to you, Helen, on another on another line and find out what your issues are. Um, and then I'll try and get you to come to agreement. You'll never be on the same line speaking together. Um, the reason for that is because um, it's less adversarial um, and it's hoped that this will um, mean that uh, settlement is, is more likely. Uh, thanks, Dan. Um... Gosh, and this is only our first um, podcast, but already so many hot topics uh, to think about and to talk about in credit hire at the moment. Um, So I think that concludes us for today. So a huge thank you to Dan and to James for talking um, through those areas uh, with us. Um, Still so much more to come on our mini series. This time we've got an update from Northern Ireland and also um, Scotland. And I'm going to be joined by David Fardy, barrister, Um, at 8DB, who's going to um, share with us some top tips for running cases uh, in front of the judiciary. Um, So I think that's it for now. Uh, Thank you for listening and we hope to see you soon.